0: Welcome to the Wilder Outdoors Podcast, where you'll get the inspiration and information you need to have great outdoor adventures with your family. I'm Rob, your host. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. On today's episode, I have Monica Rockwater with me, and Monica is an interpretive naturalist with the Three Rivers Park District. And Monica is super cool. Uh, but the reason she is on this podcast specifically is I wanted her to talk about how we get kids out uh, into nature during the winter, right? And when I say winter, I mean like the real winter, like the winter that we experience up here in the Midwest. And I wanted to do that because I know for a lot of folks, it's a, it's a hard thing to even get themselves out, especially their kids. And for me, you know, when Michelle and I moved here five years ago from Phoenix, it was like... We felt like we had to shut down our lives for six months because it's just hard. And what we've learned over time is no, actually, you can have a lot of fun in the winter. And as I'm recording this today, it happens to be the first day that it's below freezing. So uh, for those of us who are here in the north, Monica shares some really great information uh, about how you can get your kids experiencing nature specifically during the winter, in ways that are safe, interesting, and engaging, and she does a ton of great teaching on this podcast about cool animals and habitats and things that you can point out to your kids, and even methods for getting your kids to really engage with what they see and what they experience. So it's a really great conversation, uh, one that I enjoy personally, especially as I think about you know how to how to get our kids out in the coming months that are soon to be cold. And you know, if you are not from a cold place, listen to it anyway because someday you might be here. That's what I did, right? Five years ago, I was living in the desert, and all of a sudden, here I am in the beautiful but very snowy northern U.S. Uh, so, yeah, great conversation. You won't want to miss it. Monica's fantastic. She'll share some really great resources. Those will be in the show notes, so check those out. Now, before we start, just a few things. Hey, if you could do me a favor and subscribe to this podcast, it would help me out a ton. And if you like it, please, please give it a good review. It helps you know, with the momentum and, and helping other people. Uh, discover the podcast here. And finally, you know, if you are interested in getting your family into the outdoors, sign up for our newsletter. We have a newsletter that goes out every Wednesday that will share with you uh, how to prepare for a dangerous outdoor situation. So just recently we wrote about what to do um, you know, if you have hypothermia or what to do if you are dehydrated or what to do if you come across a bear, mm. those are important things that you don't think about until they happen. So every week we'll share with you that we'll share with you an outdoor or survival skill to learn. Uh, we will share with you some gear recommendations and we also share some inspirational quotes, uh, just to get you and your family revved up and excited to get into the outdoors. So you can sign up for our newsletter at www.wilderoutdooracademy.com newsletter. Again, that's wilderoutdooracademy.com newsletter. So with that, let's start today's episode. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me today. I have with me today Monica Rockwater, who is an interpretive naturalist with the Three Rivers Parks District. So Monica, thanks for joining me today.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks.
0: So, you know, we've gotten to know each other a little bit, but um, you know, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get into this role, and and where are you you know based?
1: Yeah, I am currently at Richardson Nature Center, which is run by Three Rivers Parks, part of it, um, and that's in Bloomington, Minnesota. I grew up in Minnesota, um, been here most of my life, and I initially wanted to get into um, more of the the sciences in terms of monitoring and collecting data. I thought that water and rivers and lakes would be my uh, my career. I was hoping to get into water resources, and I did that for an internship for a short period of time, realized that it was not for me and that I really needed more of the um more of the interaction with people and that my passion was sharing about all the cool stuff that I saw and found out um, on the rivers and lakes. And so I pivoted to a different internship that I had done, which was um, a summer, a summer intern at Dodge Nature Center in West St. Paul. And so I came crawling back and said, Hey, remember how I said I was going into research I actually found this to be the most joyful and best use of uh, my education and what I feel like my skill set is. Please help me figure out the career path here. And um, I feel like interpretive naturalists, it's one of the last, um, I not really white collar, but um, two or four year degree or some education under your belt, but it's an apprenticeship. And so I got the opportunity to... Um, learn at many different nature centers, starting at Dodge, then at Warner Nature Center, which is uh, no longer operating. And I was at Lowry Nature Center, the first public nature center in Minnesota, and I eventually um, scored a round, year-round full-time gig at Richardson, part of the Park District. And um, yeah, so it's it's been almost 15 years of summer camps and snowshoeing and answering questions and trying to identify, identify plants with visitors. And it's been a blast, um, but it's been quite the journey.
0: Wow. I, I didn't know that it was an apprenticeship program. So what's, what's the apprenticeship like? Like, what do you learn? How do you, how's it structured?
1: Yeah. So most people start with an internship of some kind and i've met several different people who they begin it as um you know right out of school but there are lots of folks who um do a career change and think you know this this research isn't for me my my hr career isn't what i want to do long term or whatever the case is and if you have a background in biology or teaching um that's a pretty common route but you'll, you'll often begin with an internship and then um, shift to more seasonal work. So it might be um, part-time or it might be for a six-month stint or something like that. Um, and I did several 11-month and six-month um, and part-time work before eventually gaining enough experience to be considered for a full-time year-round role.
0: So I've, I've seen you in action. So I kind of, I feel like I, I know this answer, but for folks who are listening, what, like, what does an interpretive naturalist do?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of back and forth in the fields. A lot of people say, well, it's environmental education. Um, so you're an environmental educator, but then we're more of an informal educator. I do not have a teaching background. I have a lot of experience working with kids, um, and, and just the public, but no no official degree in that. Um, so an interpretive naturalist, depending on where you are, because there are private nature centers, public nature centers, state parks, um, federal parks. Uh, so it, it does vary depending on your location and how many people are nearby. But for a, um, a high density area, like The Twin Cities Metro, and especially where we're located in Bloomington, um, a lot of my time is spent um, planning for programs, delivering programs, figuring out what to do differently so things can go smoothly. And those programs could be anything from a school group. um, So a public school, private school who schedules with us to come out and learn about a specific nature topic that supports their classroom learning. Um, we also do public programs. so that might be a weekend or an evening. For example, last night, we just had a um lantern lit trail night where there was, you know, lights around a short trail loop, some live music, some hot beverages. So anything from just being outside and having fun to something that might be a little bit more technical. Um, I did a spider session recently where, Um, We caught spiders and then examined them underneath. Um, We have the super cool microscope with a display screen on it. And we talked about the anatomy and identification and um, the natural history of of these creatures. And so it can be anywhere from have a good time outside and we're going to help facilitate that. Or we want to nurture that curiosity that you have and we will adjust to the level of technicality or knowledge that you, um, as a program participant, would would seek out or are most interested in.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I, and I should let folks know, like one of the reasons that that Monica's on today is because, I mean just candidly, I live across the street from where Monica works, and so you know, five years ago, my wife and I moved here with at the time one small kid, but now we got three. And like we moved there from Phoenix, which doesn't have a lot in terms of public services and public goods. And the first thing we noticed about the Twin Cities, right, because now we're in Minnesota, is that we have some of the best parks I've ever seen and, and I've traveled a lot. Um, and so the things that Monica, you know, is describing are really, really cool programs. Like I'd, I'd actually love it if you had a little bit more time to, uh, to describe some of those in more detail. Maybe we will later. Um, but the other reason that I, I wanted to have her on is because, you know, as a transplant, uh, the big shocker for me, aside from having beautiful parks to hang out in is that, you know, for four months, five months of the year, those parks are now covered in snow (laughs) and, and the winter is a hard time for a lot of folks to think about getting, you know, first of all, just getting themselves outside. But as a, as a dad and as a husband, thinking about how to get the whole family outside during the winter is really tough. And Monica and her team and everyone at Three Rivers, which is, you know, a bigger park system uh, does some really, really great programming, both, you know, summer, I want to say summer, winter, but really we have four seasons, right? All, all year long. And so, uh, Monica, can you tell us a little bit about, well, and I should say Monica's, you know, focus here is on, on the, the nature side of outdoors activities. And so what are some things that folks can do either through a park system or on their own to, to get outside when it's cold?
1: Yeah, I, I struggle with this myself as somebody who grew up, in this state and I think all of us, whether we are from here or not struggle with, how do I get out of the house and not just, you know, become a couch potato for five months, or how do I um, still engage with the world in a way that I'm not gonna be um, freezing or, um, or just isolated and still, still get out and about. Um, I, I would say I have to start with, um, before I get into the activities, just being dressed for being outside. Um, one of the most common things I'll hear is, "Oh, I don't ha- like. I don't have the right clothes for that, or I don't have the right stuff, or it's too expensive." Um, I am, I'm a major proponent of secondhand stores for a lot of a lot of gear. And when I say gear, that sounds really technical. What I mean is, you dress in layers. Um, you don't have to have a $150 pair of, um, of snowboarding pants, right? You can, and that's fantastic, but getting layered up, um, having uh, materials that won't stay wet, get wet and stay wet. So wool, a lot of synthetics, um, you can be well-equipped and well-dressed and prepared for the whole winter for under $100. And um, I would just encourage anybody that doesn't have snow pants, bibs are my favorite, but just, you know, regular, regular snow pants. That's step one. Once you do that, and you're not thinking about how cold your legs are or how cold your entire body is, you're able to just enjoy all that winter has to offer, which can be a lot of different things. Um, So speaking of what what winter has to offer, um, kids are really really the leaders in this. You take a child outside um, and bundle them up in a snowsuit and see what they do. As young as I've been outside with kids six months and it's just a blast watching them be curious and then have regrets when they grab a handful of snow with their bare hands and then... You know, just kind of learn about the world through their senses and um, and maybe watch their older siblings or um, romp around with with their adults there. Um, in terms of specific activities, I'll, I'll share a few of my favorites, but there are just just so many. Um, one of them that's really simple and a good entry point is doing snow and ice sculptures so you can again you can buy specific tools for this like a little like ice brick maker that's just a rectangular shape or you can just fill up some ice cream buckets with packed snow and you can build all of a sudden you are outside enjoying just enjoying what winter has to offer you're maybe doing some engineering and math as you're building um i also like to have ice sculptures Um, So that could mean you're grabbing icicles. It could mean that you're freezing stuff just in a pan or in small containers outside. And all of a sudden you have building blocks that are made of ice. Um, We have done several programs in the past. And I've seen a lot of cool ideas just using uh, food coloring or even paint in a spray bottle. And you have a whole outdoor canvas available for you. Um, I usually stay away from red and yellow snow for some obvious or red and yellow food coloring for obvious reasons. (laughs) Uh, Stick more with the blues and, and greens and purples and oranges. But um, it's, it, it ends up just being a great creative outlet, a great way to move around and kind of a fun bonding activity, especially if it lasts and you can share your beautiful ice and snow sculpture with whoever comes by and, Yeah. So that's one super easy one. If we are talking about a little bit of planning and maybe a little bit of gear, um, snowshoeing is a very fun activity with a low entry point. You can rent snowshoes all across the twin cities. There are even a few places that will lend them out for free. Um, The nearby Minnesota Valley national wildlife refuge Um, is one of the places I can think of. You'd have to check out their hours. um, But we, of course, rent snowshoes. State parks rent snowshoes. Um, Some of the outdoor stores rent snowshoes for like, you know, a day or whatever. And um, snowshoeing is really great because you are getting to see a landscape that you wouldn't necessarily see. I mean, think about being able to go over a frozen pond. You all of a sudden have, you know, a painted turtle's eye view of the world or a great blue heron's eye view of the world standing in the middle of a pond. Uh, You get to see a lot of different footprints and there are so many, so many fun um, and simple guides for children that I'll have to share with you um, showing what some of the different footprints look like and... Um, there's even, believe it or not, a um, a tracking group that they study um, the movements of creatures, the signs that they leave behind. And so you can go everywhere from, oh, I printed out this one sheet to I'm a master tracker who has gone through this training and knows about all of these animals who are active in Minnesota during the winter. So it's a very big um A very big spectrum, a very broad spectrum of um, how much you have to know or how much you want to know when you go out. Um, And some of those tracking and footprints, it's just a really fun way to see clues that tell you which animals live here that you often wouldn't see. Um, When I'm with children or families or adults, whoever, out walking, it's pretty rare that I'm going to see a coyote or even a deer. A lot of animals will hear hear us long before they see us, and find a different place to be. Right. So when you have a um, a way to see where creatures have been, you feel kind of like you're getting an insight that you don't have in the seasons without snow.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love that, and. It, it, what you've just shared, there's so many questions that I'm thinking of right now. Uh, But I I think, you know, especially as, as a parent who might be um, maybe more inclined to the indoors, but, you know, really wants to get into the outdoors, you know, it, it, it always clicks for me that we've got this really rich ecosystem around us because I'm, a lot of my work, you know, takes me outside, but, you know, for other folks, what would you say are some of the, the more interesting, but maybe lesser known animals that they might see sign of if they take their kids out during the winter?
1: Ooh, yeah, there are just off the top of my head. Um, there are little tunnels that you can see the entrances to, and a lot of times the small rodents that we'll make those tunnels. We'll just poop right outside it. Like, I don't know if it's a, I'm not going to get my home dirty or I'm going to lighten, lighten up before I move from place to place. But you'll often see like a little tunnel and then footprints and then some scat or uh, the nature word for poop just outside the tunnel, um, which is very fun. And if anybody uh, watches Wild I've had kids as young as six come up to me and say, oh, yeah, they live under the snow. That's called Subnivian. I'm like, yes, (laughs) it is. (laughs) That's great that you know that, right? Uh, Some of the Mm -hmm. more educational stuff out there, it's just fun to see what kids retain and then what they connect to what they're seeing outside. So Subnivian under the snow, it's like a whole world unto itself. And being able to see Just a little glimpse into that subnivian or under-the-snow layer is incredible. Um, uh, Some of the larger signs that you might see, if you're anywhere near water, a lot of people will see a big mound of vegetation um, in the middle of a frozen pond and immediately think beaver. We absolutely have beavers here, but um, muskrat lodges are pretty common to see, usually surrounded by... A lot of tall plants, generally cattails, and you can see that covered covered in snow, and you know that even if you can't see the muskrats right this minute, that they are still active and doing their thing under the water and in their lodge, uh, and there's no vegetation in the way, so you can easily spot that. Uh, another, another thing, if anybody is interested in birds, and there's a whole community out there that um, has a a lot of knowledge and a lot of interest in birds. Um, But for people who are just either casually interested or getting started, winter is the best time to learn how to identify birds. Um, There are fewer of them here this time of year, so you're not going to have a lot of the um, the warblers and the sparrows and the ones that raise their families here because they have left for the season. So you can really get to know the chickadees, the nuthatches, the woodpeckers, the blue jays, the cardinals, and not have to look through 10 pages of little brown birds and wonder, you know, if they have that eye stripe and if you can see it from a great distance. Um, There's not any leaves in your way to block, uh, to block what, uh, where they're perching or where they're eating. And it is fun to to just sit and watch feeders, whether that's from indoors or um, or outside. So you can also see and hear them. And there are so many different places to do that. Uh, we, of course, as you you and the kids know, we have the um, wildlife viewing room upstairs in the fireplace room, where we have the um, bird feeding station. Um, that also ends up being, of course, a squirrel feeding station. So we think it's pretty fun to watch from there um but you can also have a simple a simple feeder of some kind outside and black oil sunflower and suet are the main sources that we use but people use safflower or thistle or a lot of other um other different things that are very very easy to pick up from the hardware store or bird store or wherever and it can provide a lot of enjoyment and your pets will probably like it too if you have those.
0: <laughs> yeah, the for anyone who hasn't been there who's traveling through Bloomington, the viewing rooms at Richardson Nature Center are fantastic. Um, I Candidly have thought many times of just going there by myself and reading a book, but (laughs) I'm not going to lie. The the optics of a man without kids at a kid's place is always a little weird. (laughs) So I haven't done it, but I've wanted to many, many times. Um, It's just floor to ceiling windows with like just tons of nature around. It's, it's really beautiful.
1: I have Um, to reassure you though, the upstairs, the upstairs is um, often, Adults will just come straight to that room and sit and hang out. We have some folks that will come on a weekly basis. We could set our our calendars by them and they'll just come without, without the kids to hang out and enjoy.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I got to do that. You got to be
1: part of it. We even have coming up the um, Cornell um, Bird Lab does a um, feeder watch citizen science program or community science program. Um, where they figure out what the 10 most common um, winter birds in your state are. And so Richardson Nature Center is one of the many, many, many sites that participates. And so we have, um, it's every other Thursday and Friday, we have anywhere from two to 10 um, bird watchers and bird enthusiasts who will identify and count the birds that come to the feeder. And they always are great about welcoming kids in and letting them know what they're doing, but it's, it's an adult volunteer position. So.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I didn't know about that. Yeah. yeah for anybody who's listening, who's interested in um, birds at all, the Cornell lab is, is pretty much it, right? Like they're, they're the, the, the top of the field. Yes. Um. So Monica, you, you, you sort of hinted at something that, I'm, I'm genuinely curious about, which is the idea of like habitats and you'll have to forgive me if I'm misusing this word, but like biomes during the winter, because so like during the summer, our, our kids and I and my wife and I do a ton of things related to wild food. So we do a lot of fishing and foraging and and a little bit of hunting. Uh, And so we're very attuned to, you know, the, the ecosystem that we're a part of at the moment. Right. Cause like if you're hunting for chanterelles, you don't want to be in an elm forest. You want to be in an, in an oak forest, especially white oak forest. Right. And, and so like marshy areas are very different than high areas and, and they have different trees and, and everything is just different. But during the winter to me, especially as a transplant and as a, a novice naturalist, right. I, it all just kind of looks the same, right? Because everything freezes over, everything's covered in snow, and there are no leaves. So, are there different habitats and biomes in the winter, or do they change? Like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, that's um, that's something that I continue to learn about each and every winter as well. I'd say the best part of learning about habitats, microhabitats within, you know, an area, for example, like the subnivian zone. Um, and then just the biomes in general, is that there's there are fewer, fewer distractions, we'll say. So, um, yes, you can, of course, identify trees in the winter without their leaves. But a lot of other things, there's no sign of them. So you are able to focus on an interesting fungus that you hadn't noticed there before or some footprints that you've come across. Um, I would say my favorite micro habitats to visit uh would be any tree that has holes in it from woodpeckers or insects and that's a whole that's a whole story unto itself you have um, maybe evidence of bark beetle tunnels um, or their galleries as they're called you can see a larger hole that might have been a nesting cavity for a chickadee or a woodpecker or maybe even a barred owl um, One tree can, can just be a whole, a whole world of its own. Uh, The subnivian zone. Like I've, I might've said that word like 12 times already. I gotta, (laughs) gotta um, figure out what, what some of the other, you can tell where my focus is. Um, When you're looking around, that's, that's interesting that you say about the Oak forests. I have just learned something that hunters have known for a really long time, which is that some of the oak, um, some of the oak seeds also known as acorns are uh, more delicious or palatable than others. And so you might find more animal sign and less acorns around the more delicious ones. And you, do you know this if it's, I think it's white. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the white, The white ones have less, the white acorns have less tannins and are less bitter tasting. Um, And then the red, if you're walking the trails right now, it's end of October. um, There are so many red acorns everywhere. And boy, did I have a hard time trying to find one um, white oak acorn when I went to walk. (laughs) So they must already be all eaten up by the turkeys, squirrels, weevils, whoever. yeah, that's uh, the trees and the the forest. Those are, you could just zoom in and stay there for a long time. Um, but the prairie is another spot that I really like to go. And is it harder to identify a dried seed head that used to be a flower months ago? Yes. But it's it's still, it's quiet. You're um, probably not chancing any wood or deer ticks as you're walking through and near the grasses. Um, And it's just a a different way to look at a plant, especially a prairie plant like grasses or flowers that feels so unique and, you know, not the everyday thing. Most of us know what um, bee balm or bergamot look like, especially if um, anybody is a gardener. Those are very common cultivars. How many people know what the seed head looks like? Well, I'll tell you, it's mm-hmm. super cool. It looks like this bunch of little teeny tubes and the seeds are super small and um, it's very, it you know, has radial symmetry and it's just just this really neat look to it that if you are familiar with the beautiful flower, this might not be something that you Um, know about or have been able to stop and appreciate, but in the winter you get to see a whole different side of the exact same plant.
0: Mm, That's so cool. All right. So if we're, I'm sort of like switching into my, my dad brain here. So I've got my kids out (laughs) my, in my imaginary scenario, my kids are out They're, they're geared up and by geared up, we mean, we, they just, they probably have like a full body snowsuit on at this point. And I've got, you know, maybe my snow pants on if I'm, if I'm feeling responsible. Um, (laughs) Right. But we're all warm and we're out in the woods and I'm trying to convince my kids that this, this is really cool. Now, actually I have a son that he just pieces together the systems, the natural systems so beautifully and interestingly, but for the other two, right? I'm trying to, trying to get a hook. What is the weirdest animal that we can look for sign for, or maybe even see during the winter
1: here? Oh, um, it's hard to switch my brain to spring since I feel like I'm still adjusting to this late fall, early winter, but when the temperatures start to, um, rise at, you know, midday, and there are patches of mud or dirt underneath the snow. Um, snow fleas, they're, um, I believe it's their genus, but their Latin name is columbula. But snow fleas are teeny tiny little creatures, probably a little bit bigger than your average speck of pepper. But you can see them like hopping. So it looks like there's just these little hopping dots. And it's super fun when you find them. In something like a deer track. So you look, here's this, um, the snow. So you think, of course, there's no, there's no bugs, there's no insects, that can't be a thing. And then you look and you see these little hopping specks. And that is probably um, one of the things that I've seen children get most excited about if they come across. And often, you know, they're closer to the ground, they're paying more attention, they're not thinking about You know, if they did their taxes or if they made their car payment, right, they're just out and they're very present. And so often it's the kids who will say, oh, my gosh, look at this. I see some scat or what, you know, what are these things over here? Tell me about this. Or they'll share their observations and seeing them discover on their own snow fleas in a deer track that stands out to me. But really any footprint that they find is this big, exciting mystery for them. And um, some kids will automatically go into animals that they know. So maybe, you know, for them, it's a wolf or a tiger or a moose. And yeah, do I, I know that those don't live right here in this park, but rather than no, it's not that, or it's a fill in the blank and me giving them the answer, asking them questions and engaging their own curiosity and their own knowledge, because they have it for sure, of what are you seeing? Can you see how big or small is it? Is it larger than your hand or smaller than your hand? Are the footprints far apart or are they close together? Did it make a big dent in the snow or a little dent? And their observations will lead them to Uh, to some pretty cool ways of thinking. Like you said about um, one of your children, some kids just have that big picture view. But for kids that isn't necessarily part of the way that their brain works, you can, you can ask a lot of questions and rely on their observations. And you might get to the, you know, to the right answer or to the solve the mystery, or you have a great time thinking about what you're noticing and um, letting them be kind of the experts in a way that kids don't often get to be.
0: Mm, That's a great idea. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's a really – I don't know if it always occurred to me, but like the kids are physically closer to the ground, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, and they like, they just notice stuff. They notice stuff that you don't notice. And, and I, I love the way you talk about asking them questions and let them be, uh, be leaders in that way. Yeah, you know, our, our oldest loves to come up with theories of how and why things are working. Um, and my challenge as a dad is to like, not let error rain, but also to like, continue to cultivate this, you know, his, his desire to try to figure it out. Um, so it's, it's just really cool to hear you say that. So I've, I've got, you know, another thought as I think about how to get, get kids hooked. And, you know, um, I think when I first moved here and and I don't want to like downplay, the beauty or the power of experiencing anything in nature when I, when I say this, but like when I first moved here, I thought deer were the coolest thing ever. And now I'm like,
1: Oh my <laughs> gosh,
0: there's so many deer where we live. Yes. Um, but like last summer, right. Or it's actually, it's, I don't know if you've, you've seen, seen them at all around. Um, but it actually kind of killed the fishing in the spring. Uh, there were two river otters camped out in Bush Lake and, and so I think, like there is, there are sort of like these animals that if you get to see them, even if they're kind of ruining your fishing, uh, it, it's still like almost a little bit more of a treat or a little bit more magical to, to see them. Maybe maybe the river otter is not a good idea, but like if I can if I can ever see a barred owl, right? I know they're around, we hear them, they keep us up at night. But boy, if I get to <laughs> see one, like it's magical. So what are what are some of the the animals that I think you know? We, we can like legitimately tell our kids like, this is a really special moment. Like not a lot of people get to see this. What, what are those for you?
1: Yeah. And it, if we're talking about winter, I'm going to stay on, stay on that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I would say barred owl for sure. That's one that um, because they're so much more active, looking for a mate, raising a family in winter. Um, I have gotten to see, a barred owl before. And I think it's maybe half dozen times in my whole life. And I spend a lot of time outside that I've gotten to see an owl and just seeing a barred owl, watching how, when it gets still, it basically disappears to your eyes and you wouldn't know it was there if you weren't already looking, uh, that that's absolutely magical. Um, I have gotten to see with kids Uh, I was on the edge of a wetland and we saw a mink and they have kind of this loping, um, almost inchworm like body and gait and just watching it move, stop and look at us, move again, stop and look at us, and then disappear into the, into the cattails was a very special experience. Uh, The caveat that I do have for seeing this really special and rare sighting is that a lot of kids, especially if they are frequent zoo goers will think that it's just normal to see animals here, there, and everywhere. So I was, you know, so excited 10 out of 10, like, Oh my gosh, mink? Mm-hmm. do you see it? And the kids stopped, looked, and then they actually turned and went over to go and see a squirrel that was on the <laughs> 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 And I'm just shaking my head like you're never going to see this again maybe. This might be our only mink sighting in your whole life. And you're going to see that squirrel. So, it's it's great if you are with older kids and you see something like that. If you're with younger kids, you just have to know that for them all of it's exciting, right? I have um I have a a quote from the um the one and only senior naturalist at the park district um, who passed away recently but was um, a real fixture in our fields her name was kathy heidel and she um, as the story goes so who knows how many different times it's been changed but um she was looking at an acorn with some kids who were excited, brought it over. And apparently a kid said, you work here. Haven't you seen an acorn before? And her reply was, well, yeah, I've seen acorns, but I haven't seen this acorn with you before. And just, yeah, yeah just, just knowing that the experiences, especially if you are out with your family, this might be your you know thousandth squirrel, but this might be, you know, the 20th time that they've seen a squirrel and watched it go up a tree and really made observations about it. And, and they're doing that with you in this moment. So just the presence of whether you get to see a barred owl or a mink, or it is yet another gray squirrel, it is, you know, there's value to be found in each of those experiences. Yeah. But for, for me, it's whatever the kids are most excited about. And I'm sure for you as well, you're thinking, great, this is working. They're enjoying themselves. We're outside as a family. But boy, if you get to see um, one of the mammals who's a predator or um, or if you're getting to see a bird that you wouldn't normally see, it's pretty special. Maybe one last one. Um, nope, I have two. Up in the bird feeder room or the, where you can see the bird feeders. Um, we have the beehives, the honeybee hives that are um, that you can see directly from the fireplace room. and we were sitting in there having um, having a meeting about something wild like summer camp, you know, funny to be talking summer and looking out at the snow. and we saw a little creature hopping around and eating the dead bees right outside of the hive. And I have to figure out what it was. Maybe it was a deer mouse, but watching it jump to go and get bees, hop, hop, hop back to its little home and then come back out again. It was just it's cool to be reminded they're still doing their thing, even if I don't see them and just getting to watch it from the other side of the glass. We we had to stop our meeting for a little bit and and see that Um, I almost sat on a vole I was telling kids about some of the creatures that live in the subnivian zone, and we all sat down to take a break from snowshoeing. And this little teeny tiny gray fluff ball um, darts out, not even darts, it jumped out for its life because I sat on the snowbank, probably right where its tunnel was, jumps out and runs across the trail. There was lots of. Um, screaming, maybe excitement, maybe some fear, a lot of surprise um, from both myself and the kids. <laughs> and um, I wish that vole well, but uh, it was probably not a great day for him or her. But we sure had fun getting to see it. Um, and voles are not a common sighting, so that was that was pretty mm. neat. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So those are my those are, I think the ones that I, the kids and myself, um, uh, the kids I was with and myself were just the memorable ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I realize, Monica, like you and I are talking as people who, who are very comfortable outside like, like we have these sort of dictionaries in our heads and these frameworks and like, we're, we're pulling from it to have this conversation, but for someone, you know, who may not, spend a lot of time outside or who may be new to the area, you know, whatever it is, um, the thought of sort of getting up to speed or where do I even start to learn all this stuff gets overwhelming, right? And and I was wondering if you could speak to that.
1: Yeah, um, I could spend the rest of my life and hope to learning each and every day, especially um, winter is such a mysterious and unique Unique thing that we get to experience. Um, But in general, for any nature topics or as you're trying to acquire knowledge, I like to just take it one step at a time. So um, if my current interest is I want to know more about the mammals that I could see in winter. So check out a guidebook or a children's book in the library about mammals. Um, I would say also there's a lot, a lot of different programs that you can go to. There's so much out there in terms of great documentaries, but if you stick one um, group of living things or one concept at a time, um, that can be a really great way to dig in, but not have it be so overwhelming. Um, Some of the, the blogs like um, Minnesota Seasons or Three Rivers Parks. We have our own blog with um, different articles that come out with seasonal topics. I know the um, Larry Weber book that has a different natural history sighting or phenomena or topic each of the 365 days. Uh, that's a really neat way to have a digestible and um, and, and accurate way to learn about what's happening. Um, Yeah. So those are, those are my main suggestions. And of course, podcasts, right? We have, there's so many great productions out there that, um, that help you learn in a way that doesn't feel like you're sitting there with flashcards and memorizing, right? You're listening to a story or you're um, listening to a conversation and, and that can be a more effective and enjoyable way to learn. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I have, I definitely am going to need to follow up because I've just come across a few really great uh, resources. The um, Discover the Forest is a, a really neat one that I've just come across recently, um, and it's Descubre el Bosque. So it's, I believe it's a, um, a Spanish Spanish first, but there is an English version of the website. Um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Service um, has a lot of neat activities and resources, and it's broken up by educators and parents for kids, natural resource professionals. Um, so a lot of different categories for that. And there is also... Um one that I just found recently about winter ecology. Let me see who are you? The National Environmental Education Foundation, um based out of DC, but has some really cool um articles and scavenger hunts and things like that. Um there's really no shortage, but I will say it can be harder to find local things. So, um the the DNR is a great place, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, um, to just learn what what animals live near you, what plants you might see, and um, has some resources for children and families as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and and I'll say, uh, you know, one of the best naturalist podcasts out there, I think, with a bent towards families, is. Uh, the Wandering Naturalist, which is through Three Rivers Parks, right? And we were just talking about how you had an episode on there recently.
1: Yeah, I got to be the introduction to um, the October, an October episode a few years ago about spiders. And um, the topics in in the podcast range from, you know, very zoomed out look at the history of parks or um, how different communities interact with nature and parks to diving into one specific animal like there's one about bats there's one about spiders there's one about raptors or the um, birds of prey Um, there's some about a prairie ecosystem so yeah i i think it's a great production and um, i'm proud to be able to play a small part in it Mm -hmm.
0: well and monica i know we're, we're running a little long but man there's one question that i wanted to ask which is you know, we've we've talked about all the cool things we can do with kids, but I think something that that is really important to me, and I think in some ways happens naturally as you do this, but but I'd, I'd love your thoughts if you've got them. Is how do we sort of weave in an ethic of conservation into all of these experiences that we have outdoors?
1: That's a a big, a big concept that if I had one specific answer, boy, would I be a good problem solver. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the first thing that comes to mind for that is approaching it. Um, if, and we're focusing on families a, as a family, rather than saying, Oh, don't go off trail there. Cause that's the rule. It's, if we go off trail here, some of the subnivian creatures um, their tunnels might be interrupted or um, it can be really hard for this creature to get from place to place and and we don't want to interrupt what they do or maybe it's don't pick all of those berries for you know the the little potion that you're making because a lot of the birds will rely on those near the end so we don't want to take their you know, their grocery stores or their restaurants away is always having a um, a reason or a or sharing the logic as you're you're going through some of the things that you're doing or not doing when you're out in nature. So it isn't just this abstract thing that's a you know this fun killing rule. It's instead we are helping to take care of some of the creatures that we're we share you know, we share this place with. Um, In terms of a conservation ethic, I when I hear that, I'm usually thinking more of foraging or hunting or fishing. Um, In terms of just being outside together, I would say uh, making sure that you're asking questions or finding out how a certain space is used and uh, that's on, you know, a public place. If it's your own backyard or your own neighborhood, making sure that the things that you might offer or leave outside for creatures are actually healthful for them or, um, or are, you know, the appropriate food source. For example, I know a lot of folks really enjoy deer and um, really want to help animals outside. Uh, one of the things that I've heard people tell me that they do or um, or places that are trying to attract deer will leave out corn or or something like that the thing is um, deer the deer's digestive tract changes seasonally and adjusts to the forage or the food that's available for them so a deer can actually starve with a a belly full of corn. So thinking about, Oh, I'm doing this good thing. I'm feeding something when really nature, um, nature has, has its own rules. And we, as humans, it's best to educate ourselves about what that looks like. And Mm -hmm. yeah, a similar example, um, last year was, I believe it was last year. They're kind of blurring together, but, um, when there was a major surge in avian influenza or bird flu, um, we actually had our, um, some of the feeders down for a portion of time at the recommendation of, um, the Raptor center and, um, Audubon society. And just being aware that any, any sort of feeding can increase, uh, increase density to a point where, uh, It's, it's not what they'd naturally encounter any feeders, including the ones that we have and at nature centers around the state um, are, could be more of a disease vector. So making sure that you're really regularly washing bird feeders if you do offer that. Um, Yeah. And I'd say the last thing, any poison traps I get it. Mice do not, they're not welcome in my home for sure. Uh, They have their own habitat and I have mine. Um, But using physical, like snap traps and stuff, instead of poison, because all it takes is one poisoned mouse that ends up escaping, and all of a sudden, the red tailed hawk in my neighborhood is sick or dead because of because of that poison so just thinking carefully about the impacts that either we think might happen or that we know could happen and um, doing our best to find the right resources to to figure that out you don't have to be a researcher you can you know somebody else has figured out most any of the wildlife human interaction issues that we might come across so um, when in doubt send send a message, whether that's um, to your local park or to your local Department of Natural Resources, your city park, um, and they will be happy to connect you and just happy that you have that conservation mindset and are choosing to seek out um, what is best practice.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. And so, you know, last thing today is how can folks, especially if they're in the, in the twin cities, right? So a lot of the stuff you've said is applicable to most of the Midwest, especially if there's snow. Um, but if they want to connect with, with you or with three rivers, um, especially we had mentioned some of the family opportunities there, where can they go?
1: Um, in terms of folks that are living in the twin cities, um, you can visit the Three Rivers Parks website, Um, You can physically visit the park. We are open 363 days a year um, and nine to five Monday through Saturday. Sunday's open noon to five. Um, we love to chat with people in person or uh, we can also be reached at our social media channels. Um, Richardson has both Instagram and Facebook, um, the Three Rivers Park District, um, overarching accounts, any of the, um, the park reserve accounts. And that usually is the case for um, a lot of different parks, zoos, conservation organizations is we're all very excited to hear from people and whatever question you have, it's we're, we're just happy that people are curious and engaged.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and real quick, tell folks about the free family fun days.
1: Oh yes. Uh, we have free family fun day programs, most Sunday afternoons um, in the um, in part of the year where it's, it's easy for us to be programming outdoors um, for a longer period of time. It's one to 3 PM Sunday afternoons and um, in the winter, we do shift to three to four p.m. Um, so us, our volunteers, whatever program participants show up and um, and are there with us that day, um, just to have an easy entry point, usually very beginner, um, beginner level. But like I said before, we like to um, meet meet everybody where they're at. So the topics range from everything, everything from. Um, the Minnesota reptiles, and we might have a reptile guest, one of our snakes or turtles. Um, might talk about um, the animals that live in the soil and on the forest floor and use some tools to search for them. We could be highlighting bird watching and have binoculars and guidebooks available for use. Um, we might have a digital scavenger hunt where people can um, go out on the trails and come back tell us what they found and we often will have examples of those items for people to follow up with and learn more about. Um, so the topics really vary and we do share those on our website and we have physical flyers in the building as well but um, we we definitely like to keep like to keep the topics rotating and we see, Sometimes we see families just the one time and they have a lot of other things that they choose to do. And sometimes we see the same folks um, week after week or month after month. And however you'd like to engage with those programs, we're here and we will welcome you. We'll welcome you when you show up. And um, it's all ages, family, friends, come by yourself, whatever, whatever works. All
0: right. All right. Well, I know we will be uh, taking advantage of that coming up here. But uh, Monica, this has been great. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity and I will see you around the park.